All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition, coming to you live on YouTube. And so if you're on our YouTube channel watching live with us, you can leave your comments or your questions on the live chat on the YouTube video, and we'll be able to interact with you in that way. Uh, or uh, if you uh, have any questions that come to us afterwards, after the show, then you can visit our website at BibleQuest.tv or BibleQuest.org. Either one of those will get you to our website and you can leave your questions or your comments there. Uh, and uh, also, if you like what you see and uh, you want to help support our channel and, and uh, help us to reach new people, you can like or subscribe to our channel and like the video and that will help other people be able to see our content as well. Uh, so today we've got Scott Smelser with us. How are you doing today, Scott? Doing right. Good to see you. Uh, got Dan Bunting. How are you, Dan? Doing well. Thank you. Good. And Justin Dobbs. How are you doing, Justin? Your mic is muted, Justin. But I heard you. I, I saw your mouth move. <laughs> you knew what I was saying. I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah. Doing well. Doing well. Good to see you guys. Uh, so today we're going to go back into something we've been doing kind of periodically, just working through the Gospel of Mark and kind of noticing some different things through this short gospel. And we're up to Mark chapter nine. Um, so I can get us started because the beginning of Mark nine really has to do a lot with what Jesus just said at the end of Mark eight. So we'll just read the first verse in Mark nine. Mark nine, verse one says, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Uh, so pretty simple statement that Jesus makes and actually a really important statement that he makes on the tail end of Mark chapter eight. He was talking about what it meant to follow him. Uh, if you wanted to be a citizen of his, be a follower of his, uh, that meant that you were going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to follow Jesus. Uh, you're going to have to give up the things in the world because it's no good for you if you win the whole world, but forfeit your soul and all those types of things, what Jesus is talking about. He's really describing what it means to live for the kingdom of God. And that leads him to say in Mark chapter nine, verse one, that the kingdom of God is actually really, really close. Um, it, it's going to be very soon. Um, and so when Jesus says what he says in verse one, what does he mean? What, what can we expect from what he says in verse one, as far as like when the kingdom happened, when the kingdom of God is, what the kingdom of God is, what, what's Jesus talking about with that? I think he's just letting his audience understand that, like you said, it's at hand. There's going to be people that were listening to him, you know, we'd say live in that audience at that moment um, who were going to see uh, the effects of the, the kingdom coming. He doesn't really say what they'll see. Uh, he doesn't say give us a lot of details about the specifics, but he he let his audience know you're going to see this. He adds one uh, descriptive phrase that matches <laughs> up, I think, with Luke 24. He says, "You'll see the kingdom come with power, power." Mm -hmm. And then after his resurrection, he tells the apostles, "Stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high." Power. And then on the day of Pentecost, we have basically it's a, among other things, it's a coronation announcement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was the Christ is Lord and Christ at the right hand of God. Yeah. So it's easy for us to link what Jesus is talking about with the kingdom of God and some other things that happen later on in history. Jesus is hinting at this idea. Really, the kingdom is established. Christ begins reigning as king 
in Acts, uh, or at least after his resurrection, maybe not specifically in Acts, end of, end of the Gospels into Acts. And it's that starting coronation speech of Jesus is now Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, what Peter says in Acts 2. Uh, and that leads to this kingdom of God. And Peter tells people how to become citizens of the kingdom of God in Acts 2, along with the other apostles. Go ahead, Scott. And it's easy for us to see that now because we've got Luke 24 and we've got Acts 2. But at the time, keeping in mind, when Jesus goes to the cross, do the apostles understand? No. So there's, as Dan mentioned, there's not a lot of detail here. So with the one detail, you'll see the kingdom come with power. How might that have been interpreted by a lot of the immediate audience? With military strength, you know, like over overrule, uh, overpower the, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, reestablish the kingdom of Israel, kind of thing. Just a question about that. Um, I mean, you can take this lots of questions about this passage. I mean, there's a sense in which Jesus's kingdom does come in the first century, I and mean, either that or there's some really old people around today. This is there's some who are standing there, wouldn't taste death. Um, and my mind goes Indiana Jones, the Last Crusade. There's that one knight who's just like ancient, standing there. Uh, he's been waiting years and years. Uh, that's not the case. Um, so it did come in that generation. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, what does that mean exactly? Like practically speaking, for example, uh, Mark doesn't get into detail back in Mark chapter one. He talks about uh satan tempting him in the wilderness but one of the temptations that matthew and luke both record for us is that satan offers to give him the kingdoms of the earth and it seems like that's something that jesus wants or wouldn't have been a temptation um what, what's the difference between jesus not yet having his kingdom and then now he has his kingdom matthew 28 he has all authority and power in heaven on earth is there a practical difference that we should acknowledge there? Kingdoms of earth are full of ungodly people run by ungodly people. Uh, and if you get to do an Alexander the Great number and go through and conquer a bunch of people and subject them, that doesn't mean that these people have been reunited with God. It means that you've coalesced a bunch of ungodly people under your ungodly rule. Later on in Mark, Jesus talks about that uh, the, there's a good understanding that the Gentile nations, they lord it over and they execute, exercise authority over. And so that, that fits in, in my mind, Scott, with what you're saying. Um, the, the kingdom of Jesus is not going to be anything like that. It's going to be about service. It's going to be about becoming a slave and becoming a servant. And so the... I, I would just imagine that trying to compare the apples with the oranges is going to just create more confusion than anything else. And who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom? The, the, the slave. Uh, the greatest is going to be the servant, and the first is going to be the slave. And, and the one that makes himself like a little child. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Doesn't sound very powerful, Bill Gerald. <laughs> Look out, here come the toddlers. Yeah. Yeah, and that plays on some of the statements that Jesus makes anyway in, in John, whenever he's standing before Pilate. Uh, he'd make it very clear, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight 
it's a, it's a different type of kingdom than what people were expecting. So, so practically, it sounds like uh, recognizing that the kingdom has come. There's this uh, not just motivation, but but empowerment uh, for living a meek, quiet, serving life without feeling the uh, the threat of being overrun. I mean. You see the apostles, early disciples, giving themselves over to persecution. I mean, they, they would flee from town to town when necessary, but uh, if they died, that wasn't the end of it. They, they're not trying to conquer the world in that same kind of sense. They conquer by giving themselves as a sacrifice. So it, uh, I guess practically that that lends itself to a life of peace. Uh, I'm not worried if I fail uh, in an earthly way, uh, but Jesus has already conquered he's ruling there's a guaranteed success if i just cling to him but that's helpful it's also interesting to know that here we have the kingdom will come with power but in luke 17 20 and 21 when the pharisees ask when his kingdom comes he says the kingdom doesn't come with observation he won't say here it is or there it is so it's not like an army is going to come through and set up you know borders uh it Jesus is the king of all those that subject himself to them. And I wonder if that idea is connected with what Paul says when he talks about the power of God in Romans. Uh, the power of God for salvation is the gospel, um, which is really the, the the primary weapon used in this this conquering kind of crusade of Jesus and his kingdom. It's, it's the message of the gospel. Um, that's illustrating God's power and like what Justin was talking about to, to change people, to give, uh, you know, boldness in the face of temptation or, or, or adversaries or whatever. So a uh, different kind of power than what you'd expect too, but, uh, a more substantial and more long lasting power, uh, as well. All right. Uh, anything else you guys want to say through verse one? Just one last point. And that is the two important cities tried to destroy Christianity. Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, uh, gave orders, don't say anything about this. Of course, they had Jesus crucified. And then later, Rome uh, is going to uh, make being a Christian illegal. Uh, and Jerusalem falls and Rome falls. King of God prevails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that idea, that makes me think of, of Daniel's vision um, in Daniel chapter 2. Um, you know, the, this big rock that's not carved by human hand is going to come and it's going to shatter all these other kingdoms, but it's going to be this giant mountain that fills up the whole earth. It's going to last. So. Cool. Uh, all right. Um, when do you guys want to take us through the, the next part of chapter nine? I'll read through that. Um, I'll read verses two through verse eight. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is a really important event uh, that, that happens. It's rooted in a lot of different things that will come later on. Uh, so what, what do you guys want to talk about? What do you want to notice in this section? It's a lot well, to talk about. So just, just quite simply, one of the difficulties with this passage that I have is it's a tremendously important event, and it's written about in seven quick verses. And uh, the story doesn't, um, it doesn't give, like, it doesn't say this is why this is important. Um, it doesn't give a lot of, here are the talking points. Um, and, and so I, I always feel myself struggling to figure out, well, what should I say about it? And I almost just end up wanting to just reread it again, because I don't know what, what can I say? <laughs> You're in good company there. Peter had no clue what to say either. And he said the wrong thing. Uh, and, it, and it's probably, I mean, this would be an event I think the Jews would want to talk a lot about. Um, but someone who does speak up, this voice from heaven, says what apparently is the thing that needed to be said in that moment is this is my son. Uh, mm -hmm. Listen to him. And that's the takeaway is however and awesome and amazing all these things are because there's a lot we'll probably unpack here uh, the, the big thing is Jesus um, and whatever transfigured means like I, I get the idea that like sort of the um, like you ever in, in uh, the, the Wizard of Oz not the movie but the book if you've ever read the book they go into the Emerald City and actually everyone has to wear green glasses because not everything is made of emeralds and it's sort of like the, the shades are there to present a reality that's not really reality. And it's sort of like Jesus has the shades taken off. It's like, you're going to see Jesus in like he really is. And he's even more wonderful and amazing than you could have thought. He's transfigured, he's transformed to show uh, his true glory. And I can hardly, hardly handle it. Uh, but then there's Moses and Elijah. And I, I don't know. Um, I like to think there's something pretty significant about why these two guys. But any thoughts about what they're doing up there with these three prophets? Go ahead, Dan. Oh, well, my sister-in-law pointed out to me that the three men standing on this mountain together, um, all three spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness of Judea fasting uh, before their encounters with God. So um, Moses with Mount Sinai uh, during his encounter with God, Elijah on his approach to Mount Oreb, which turns out to be the same mountain, and uh, Jesus before his, you know, in his 40 days um, uh, being tempted and with the final three temptations. Um, that's mentioned as the wilderness of Judea. I don't know if he made it all the way to the same place, but um, th there, there is one connection between all three of them. Also, I, I'm getting an unstable signal. Can you guys hear me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're good. Um, Moses also, I think, stands for the law. He's the lawgiver. And how many times do we see the expression of the law and the prophets? The law and the prophets. We got Moses, therefore, the law, and Elijah, therefore, one of the prophets. And there's also that Malachi 4 passage, although that's really fulfilled, Jesus makes clear in John the Baptist. Um, I also think it's interesting. It's such a Peter thing here. He didn't know what to say. So he said something. Mm -hmm. um, and if somebody could comment to the idea, in case anybody has confusion, a lot of translations say he offered to three build build three tabernacles. And somebody might think that 
he's offering to construct, you know, a holy temple-like thing to these, and that's not it. So anybody wants to explain that? Um, but the other thing is that this is such, I think, an answer to and reflection of Deuteronomy 18, chapter 8, 18, verse 15. Uh, Moses says, the Lord will raise up a prophet after, after me, like me. And when he comes, listen to him. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus comes and he fulfills so many of the prototypes seen from Moses, including Moses went up on a mountain and got shiny. Jesus is up on the mountain and he's shiny. And then while Peter said, wow, look at these three. Let's do all this for all three. And the boy said, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And I think mm-hmm. that hear ye him answers to that Deuteronomy 18. When he comes, listen to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll just mention really quickly about what you said about what, what Peter's statement is. And, and Mark, I think the ESV does a good job of translating it. Uh, the, the ESV translates verse 5 as uh, P- Peter saying, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, um, which is the same, same word, tent, tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent. Um, But the idea, I think, is not that Peter wants to set up these centers of worship, uh, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's not saying that. He wants them to be able to stay. Um, And I think that's more helpful and easy to see in Luke's account. Luke adds an extra detail. Uh, In Luke chapter 9, in verse 32, uh, it says, When Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And verse 33 said, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. So the picture is Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus and they're speaking with him about, uh, uh, Luke actually also says they're speaking with him about Jesus's exodus or his departure. Uh, they're talking about the sacrifice Jesus is going to be making. And then they get done with their conversation and Moses and Elijah start to leave. And that's where Peter says, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Um, let's make some places for them to stay. Like, like we don't want them to leave yet. We want Moses and Elijah to stay here. So that's a, a more accurate way of looking at it. It's not that Peter's saying, let's worship them, but we want them to stay here. And that's where God says, no, you don't need Moses and Elijah to stay. You need to listen to Jesus. He's my son. Good, Justin. I, I think it's just a really cool, that kind of about that point that Luke makes, you know, speaking about his exodus, his departure. Um, you know, Moses left, and at the end of Deuteronomy, the the writer of Deuteronomy, apparently, the one who puts that that tag on the end, is just grieving that Moses isn't there anymore. He's like, you know, we haven't had a Moses. We need another Moses. And then Elijah leaves, and Elisha's pretty upset that Elijah's leaving, and then all of the other prophets are like, can we go and look for him? Like, sure, he's out there somewhere, but you're, you're embarrassing me. Go look for him, but you're not going to find him. Uh, and here's Jesus. And of course, at the end of this, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to leave. But his point is, I'm going to be with you always to the end of the earth. Like I'm, I'm always going to be with you. So Jesus is the uh, the spokesman of God who shows the glory of God uh, in a way that Moses and Elijah never could. And he sticks with his disciples. So something greater than Moses, something greater than Elijah is here. That's a pretty cool idea. He's about to have his exodus, um, but he's, he's not leaving. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so uh, anything else you guys want to say through verse 8? 
just a really little idea, but we we might come up with some pretty neat ideas. Uh, but we need to listen to God when He very politely says, "Shut up and listen to Jesus." Uh, it, it's just it's just such a, a a simple little story where Peter is just not knowing what to do, and he's coming up with ideas. And there's the big lesson. We need to listen to Jesus. He is the one. He is the direction. He is the new covenant. Um, but then there's also the close your mouth and listen to Jesus aspect of the story that I really appreciate. And since we mentioned it, let's just hit this chart real quick. On In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me. And I remember well, back in the mid-80s, reading in Deuteronomy, I saw that verse, and I thought, I wonder how much there is to that. And, you know, when you start looking at the parallels, there, there's a lot of them. And so I'm going to take one minute here and share this. I can remember how. One last try. Skip it. Go ahead. <laughs> That's right. Maybe maybe next time we can uh, can pull up the chart. But yeah, there's there's to make your point what your what your chart says. There are a lot of um, references mm -hmm. um, and and points uh, that that show that about Jesus. Okay, so so this event happens. Um, Peter, James, and John are the three that get to see this. They witness what what the Father says about Jesus. Uh, how he's greater than Elijah, than Moses. He's the one they need to listen to. And then they get some really interesting instructions um, about that. Uh, so in Mark 9, verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written of the son of man that how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Uh, so they're on their way down. And, and what does Jesus teach them in, in this section or tell them to do or not do? He reminds them of his teaching earlier in chapter eight where he had first begun to communicate his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, this is kind of a subtle uh, reminder. Hey, I'm, I'm going to die and be raised. Uh, and they seem to be pretty clueless about that. Uh, but but then they have questions about something else. He's not even really interested in talking about that. So they want to know more about Elijah. We just saw Elijah really excited about Elijah coming from Malachi. Um, and he briefly answers it, but gets them to think about something maybe they hadn't thought about before, which is the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures foretold that the Son of Man, his Messiah figure, would be a suffering servant. And I, I don't think they really paused to wrap their minds around that. They're fascinated with Elijah, but they really need to be spending some time thinking about this suffering servant Messiah idea, because they see him as the conqueror, the, the, the new king. But what's this suffering thing? And they, they seem to be struggling to get that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but even in spite of that, um, where, where they're not getting that, Jesus still kind of appeases them a little bit and tells them more about Elijah. Um, and it's really kind of interesting. What is uh, that they ask, you know, why, why does Elijah have to come first? Why do the scribes say that? And Jesus says, well, Elijah needs to come first. And actually, Elijah has come. 
already. What's he talking about there? Matthew's really nice about it because he just says, hey, guys, it's John the Baptist. <laughs> uh, so, so Matthew makes it easy. Is it Matthew 17? Uh, Mark just kind of leaves us like, oh, I guess he's come, whoever that guy is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so Elijah is John the Baptist. The, the prophecy of Elijah coming first uh, is in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi says that Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's John coming, preparing the way, the prophecy of like Isaiah 40. He's the voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, all of those different prophecies are fulfilled in Elijah. And and Jesus says, that's happened. Um, the, the scribes got that right. Elijah does have to come first. Well, he came first. Now I'm here. <laughs> Go ahead, Scott. And two other passages that relate to that. He's not Elijah himself reincarnated. Uh, it's another version uh, of Elijah in type. Uh, we know that because in John 1, they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he said, no, he's not the person of Elijah. But if you remember what the angel said to Zach, uh, to uh, Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's father, when he predicted John's birth, what did the angel say? He will come in the spirit, the spirit of Elijah, is that the phrase? Spirit and power of Elijah. And even when you look at the description of Elijah in the Old Testament, you know, the leather and the and the hair, hairy garment, you know, it's uh, they, they, they even have a similar appearance there. There's some other passages where, not just with Elijah, but where uh, in particular New Testament writers will refer to, um, they will describe someone um, that they know in the present tense uh, and give them an Old Testament name. Uh, All these different false teachers who are described as Balaam, Balaam who had died hundreds of years before, Um, these problematic cities that are described as Babylon. And it wasn't necessarily code. Um, If you call someone Benedict Arnold today, there's no confusion as to who you think the person in front of you is. You're calling them a type. You're calling them a a, a character, like a stock character. And so calling, I mean, I don't want to dumb down the Elijah idea, but when you would call somebody Elijah, it seems, you were calling he has the qualities or he is coming in the manner of. uh, And and so there's that image that that isn't just in this one person with john the baptist yes well if we can appreciate that idea it makes some other um, messianic passages from the old testament uh easier to understand like uh, ezekiel 34 for example where god is upset with the leaders the jews um, he calls them the shepherds and he says i'm going to appoint david as the shepherd well david's been dead for like 500 years now uh, so who's he talking about? Well, the Jews would have understood, of course, he's talking about uh, the heir of David, but it's someone who's going to be very David-like and who's going to be a shepherd in ways like David. Uh, so kind of Elijah, John the Baptist, David, Jesus. It's not David coming back incarnated again, uh, but it's the heir of David. Jesus is the new David. In parallel with Benedict Arnold, uh, what's the... Uh, easy, cheap tactic of almost every middle school, high school debate and political campaign. You're Hitler. <laughs> Maybe you guys haven't been to many middle school, <laughs> high school debates. Yeah. <laughs> Part way through with somebody's eyes. Your policies are like Hitler. <laughs> One rule is that whoever mentions Hitler first loses. There you go. 
Yeah. One one final thing here before we move on is it is helpful. Like like Jonathan said, Jesus does he's patiently answering the questions about Elijah. Uh, they seem to be struggling with the idea that the Messiah is going to suffer. But Jesus points out that Elijah also suffers. Uh, John the Baptist suffered. Um, you know, he was imprisoned and then beheaded. And then Jesus, of course, the Messiah will suffer. So don't be surprised when the one that God sends, the mighty one, is going to suffer. Lots of spokesmen for God for the ages have suffered in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. All right. Um, We've got time probably for one more story here, and uh, this is a big story, and I really like this story. A lot of really cool things happen in this story. So when do you guys want to read the, the next section? I can take that if... Uh... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. No, you probably got better background noise than I do. And when they were come to Capernaum, they asked... Oh, yeah, yeah. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received the half shekel came to Peter and said, does not your teacher pay the half shekel? Are you yeah. are you in chapter nine, Scott? No, I flipped over to Matthew seventeen to that account. Yeah. So somebody was in the right spot. Go ahead. I'll, I'll give it a shot here. Uh, Mark nine verse fourteen. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to Jesus and greeted him. And he asked them, "What are you arguing about with them?" And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, I'm trying. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately after, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. All right. So some interesting things uh, happen here. I've got one thing at least that I want to talk about and then other things that you guys can talk about. The The last statement that Jesus makes in this story, when the, the disciples, the apostles come to him, they had been unable to cast out the unclean spirit and everyone's kind of frustrated with them. Jesus expresses his own frustration and their lack of faith or lack of belief. Um, and then he cast the demon out and they asked Jesus, well, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, because this kind only comes out with, with fasting and prayer. Um, what does he mean by that? And why, why is that important? Um, there's just a couple of observations I want to make. Um, one is this would have not been the first time that the apostles had been confronted with an unclean spirit to cast out. Um, in Mark chapter six, 
Jesus gives the 12 apostles authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and he sends them out in pairs in Mark 6, verse 7 through 13. And verse 12 of Mark 6 says, they went out and they proclaimed that all people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. So the apostles had cast out demons before. They had done this. They'd been able to do this by the power of God. This is kind of interesting. This is a little bit of speculation, so I'm curious about your guys' thoughts on this. I wonder if what was happening here maybe was like you, you kind of kind of imagine if you're one of the apostles and it's your first time being sent out by Jesus to go and cast a demon out, like what that experience might be like. Um, I imagine it'd probably be kind of terrifying, a little nerve wracking. Um, you know, you're not really sure if it's going to happen, if it's not going to happen. Uh, some demons it looked like in the first century were potentially dangerous to people uh, in Acts chapter 19. The demon masters the the sons of Sceva and sends them out running away, uh, scared. Um, so I'd imagine it'd be a little bit scary. And so it's your first time. You're like Peter, first time casting out a demon. You come in and you pray to God and you ask God to please cast out the demon uh, by the spirit. And God does it. It's like, wow, um, that's really amazing. That's That's the power of God. And maybe your second and third time, you're praying to God, you're asking for God's help in that situation. And kind of slowly but surely, maybe you start getting more and more confident in your own personal demon casting out abilities. And I wonder if that's maybe where the apostles have gotten to in Mark chapter 9. Um, Jesus says that they were, were unbelieving and a faithless generation. And he points out that they hadn't prayed. Um, I wonder if maybe they were trying to cast out the demon by their by their own power, their own selves. It's a little bit speculation on my part. And Jesus is reminding them the power and ability that you have does not come from you. It comes from God. And you need to ask God to help you to cast this demon out. It comes out by prayer. Um, that's just my own kind of personal putting the pieces together, what Jesus is saying. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Do you think something different? Go ahead, Justin. I, I agree with you. I think that's a lot of what's happening here. Uh, it's interesting here in Mark 9, verse uh, 18, he says, I asked your disciples to cast him out. Um, I, I kind of picture, again, this is a little bit of speculation, but I, I kind of picture, uh, you know, there, there are three disciples up on the mountain with Jesus. The other nine are down here. And and say, I don't know, Simon, uh, Simon the Zealot, says, well, yeah, I'll, I'll cast him out. I'll take this one, guys. You just take a break. I'll handle this. And then he struggles with it. Uh, and so Bartholomew's like, well, you know, I was in the last town. I had some pretty good luck with being this myself. And so like one by one, the disciples all try until like the last one's like, I'm afraid to even try because everyone has failed. And so they're kind of lining up to put themselves up on the other one. And their their kind of rivalry with each other makes it look like a circus. And so that when Jesus actually comes down, there are disciples who are arguing with the scribes. So not only have they failed to cast out the demon, but they're bringing reproach on Jesus as their master because they're arguing with each other. Now they're arguing with other people who have come along and they've just missed the whole point, which is bringing God glory by helping this this little boy. Yeah, and not only bringing God glory, but also trusting in God and his ability to do it. That's Jesus's first rebuke. Whenever he learns that his disciples were unable to do this, he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? Uh, How long do I have to bear with you through this thing? Um, And so I think, you know, looking at Jesus's statements and the rebukes and his advice, it's pretty clear the apostles aren't trusting in God. They're not relying on God. They're not asking God for help in this situation. And so they're, they're unable to do it. 
by their own power uh, because they don't have power or authority over demons. It's God's authority that he's given them. Um, Scott, did you have your hand up? Yeah, what you said about uh, maybe starting to assume too much about their own authority, it got me thinking about a pattern that you see in people in general. Uh, somebody runs for a school board and the taxpayers in that community interested in their schools you know, elects these half a dozen people to a school board. And then if you've been paying attention to the news and seen any of the school board meetings in the last, you know, couple of years, often there's a great deal of arrogance from the school board towards those parents of the children and the taxpayers. Uh, and it doesn't seem lots of times like they have a lot of respect of remembering where their authority came from. Yeah, it's really easy once you get some authority and kind of feel yeah. and taste what that feels like to let it go to your head. That's the real danger of Barbara. positions of leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what maybe about the, to... go ahead, Justin. Sorry, I was just, maybe another thought on that question um, in verse 29. I've wondered before where Jesus says this kind, and I'm curious what you guys think about this. Um, a lot of Jesus's prior interaction with demons, they come up and they say, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And they immediately start, you know, uh, not praising Jesus, but they are uh, loudly proclaiming who he is. This one, though, when it sees Jesus, shuts up. And I wonder if that's significant at all here, is this one doesn't give Jesus glory the way the other ones have. Uh, and so the way that Jesus still gets glory is by casting out the demon, but he emphasizes kind of what you were saying, Jonathan, is uh, we, we need to be trusting in God and depending on him. Uh, and so even if the demons won't give glory, uh, Jesus will still accomplish his purpose. And so I, you know, the application for me there is God's going to get glory one way or the other. And I want to be part of that process. And so the way that I'm part of that process is I depend on his power. I need to be prayerful. I need to be acting like I believe I need his help because I really do need his help. And if I don't, then he's going to get glory by not letting me have it myself. And I'm going to fail um, and, and I'm going to look kind of goofy uh, because I haven't been dependent on him. Yeah, and one quick thing going off of that, what you said, J Jesus, when he rebukes the spirit in verse 25, he calls it a mute and deaf spirit. I don't know if there's any significance to that, but maybe just playing on that idea. Um, he, he's not acknowledging Jesus, but whether he wants to acknowledge or not, God and Jesus have authority over, over it. I'm reminded of James 2, the more typical pattern we see of unclean spirits is what? They fear and tremble. Mm -hmm. And this one doesn't seem to be fearing and trembling. So I, I've not noticed that uh, difference there before. Thanks, Justin. What about uh, another thing in this story? What about this, uh, the, the child's father? What, what do you guys make of him, the things that he says? What, what can we learn from that? I, I find his statement very interesting at the end where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. So we can see some reasons why he believed, and we see some reasons that would have contributed to a doubt. Uh, the first thing we see that he believed was, who did he try to go see to take care of his son? Jesus, why would he do that? Because he believed in at least the possibility, if not likelihood or certainty, that Jesus could heal him. Uh, so we, we see faith there. And then Jesus is, isn't there, but some of the apostles are there. And 
they try and what? They fail. Would that tend to increase his faith or raise questions and doubts? Probably raise questions and doubts. Yeah. 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 So he comes, you know, with an attitude of faith. And then there's something that's not working and it creates a doubt. And then Jesus comes and he says, uh, and, you know, what's going on? And he said, well, I brought them to your disciples, but they couldn't do it. Um, and, uh, and, and he says to Jesus, if you can. And of course, Jesus says, if. And then we have his famous response. Lord, I believe, help my own belief. Yeah, he's my favorite part of the whole story is this man, because he's, um, with all the confusion of what is it that the apostles did or failed to do specifically, um, uh, what specific thing is Jesus frustrated with? Is is it about the crowds? Is it about the apostles? Is it about the Pharisees or the scribes who are, who are who are bickering? There's a lot of confusion or question. It's it's just kind of a a lot of things going on. But this man is completely relatable. He's someone who's looking for help. He's coming to Jesus. He doesn't understand everything, but he has faith. I wonder in 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 our English we speak about uh, we will say if you can do this for me, uh, we put that into that that possibility and that questioning format uh, merely as a way of being polite. And I don't know if that idiom would be there in, in the Aramaic or, or in the language originally there, but um, you know, we, we ask, we don't tell someone do this for me. We say, we say it, if you could do this for me. And it's not a question of, do you have the physical or spiritual powers to give me a ride? It's, are you willing to give me a ride somewhere? And I wonder if it, if he was even asking it that way, if, if you could, if you could spare the time, um, if you are willing, you can make me whole is the way one man um, speaks to Jesus. But Jesus calls him on that uh, and really challenges that if, the way he challenges other words like good teacher that others say. And when the man responds back, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's one of the most um, relatable moments in the entire Bible. Um, how many people know God and believe in God and trust God and then have a hard time obeying or have a hard time with their temptations and uh, want to do what's right and, and feel like they're unable to do what's right. It, it's, it's such a relatable statement. I really adore it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I hadn't, I hadn't seen that before in verse 21. There are a lot of different people that Jesus could have given his attention to, the disciples, the scribes, there's a crowd that's running up here in just a moment in verse 25. Um, but Jesus sees this man who has this almost like dying ember of faith. And he doesn't want to see that go out. Uh, he's sort of like the, the smoking wick. Uh, and, and so Jesus is going to try to keep that going. You know, yes, the boy is important and the demon casting out the demon for his benefit is important. But he turns to the father and has this personal interaction with him. That is uh, precious. So if, if we're struggling, Jesus cares. If we're struggling to believe and have confidence that God sees us and loves us and cares for us and he can take care of us, uh, he sees that and he, he wants us to know that he, he can take care of us. Scott? The first Peter 3.15, we need to have a reason for our belief. But that doesn't mean that we're going to have an answer for every question that we have. Uh, Abraham was a man of faith who took Isaac 
and he had an idea in his head what God might do, but he, why God asked him to do this? How is this good? Uh, and I, I, one of my favorite statements of Peter is when Jesus, the crowd that had the fish buffet, came the next day, and they want more of the same. And Jesus purposely, I think, says some really hard, almost impenetrable statements. And they say, that's hard saying. Who can hear that? And they're heading out. And Jesus says to the apostles, you guys going to leave too? I love Peter's answer. He doesn't say, no, Lord, because I understood every word of that. He said, Lord, before we can go, you've got the words of eternal life. So we don't need to be gullible. We need a reason to believe. But in believing things that are beyond us, there are going to be some things sometimes that we don't know. He didn't know why, you know, the, the apostles didn't know why they couldn't cast this demon out and everything. But he's hanging on. And he says, help my unbelief. And so. Yeah, and I want to hit on something, too, that Justin said, because I really I really like that image. Um, he, he kind of briefly quoted from Isaiah 42. Um, which is one of the servant songs, one of the prophecies about Jesus, what the servant of the Lord would be like. And it's talking about what he's going to come, what he's going to do, what he's going to be like. And in Isaiah 42, verse 3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Um, that's what the Lord's servant is going to do, which is Jesus. Um, and I think this is a story that illustrates that. You've got this faintly burning wick of, I've got some, help me with the rest of it um, kind of thing. Like I really want to. And I think that's such a wonderful promise from God um, that if we apply ourselves, if we do our best, maybe we don't have all the answers. Maybe we, we, we don't, we're not able to do everything. Definitely. We're not going to be able to do it all, but God will help us in those moments. Uh, he won't just shut us down when we're really trying, when we're faintly burning uh, like this man. So I think it's a really powerful picture another picture of jesus's compassion and his mercy and how he really wants to help people along the way of learning and getting closer to him uh, now on the other end of that we need to make sure we're not taking advantage of of that kind of grace and mercy and patience that god offers people will try to do that but if we're really heartfelt and and i'm really trying here god just please help me the rest of the way god will do that he's he's promised to help with those moments Okay, uh, anything else you guys want to say through uh, that story in Mark 9 before we start wrapping up? Cool. All right, well, next time we're in Mark, we'll pick up in Mark 9, verse 30. Uh, but we'll stop there for today. It's all the time we have for this week. Thank you to our audience for tuning in with us. Uh, and if again, if you like what you are hearing or have anything that you'd like to ask us in the future on our future programs, visit our website, BibleQuest.org. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, like the video, uh, and share it with your friends. And we'd be happy to talk about what you want us to talk about in our future programs. But we will plan on seeing everyone next week, God willing. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. You don't have to. You don't have to sign up. And I didn't say that.